All right, I have a short Christmas quiz for us. Okay, I heard the groans already. Some of you are thinking, you're lucky we even showed up today on Christmas morning, and you throw a pop quiz at us. Don't worry, these are pretty easy. They're probably one, one cup of coffee questions, if that. All right, first question. Which two groups of people came to visit Jesus after he was born? Shepherds and the Magi, the wise men. Yep. Second question. I told you these were easy, all right? Second question. What gifts did the wise men, the Magi, bring to baby Jesus? Okay. I, I, picked out, I picked out different words in there. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? Third question. How many wise men visited Jesus? Oh, I stumped you with that one. Okay. Dane is in the back going like this because he knows exactly what I'm getting at. Okay. We don't actually know how many wise men visited Jesus. We know there were three gifts, but we don't know how many wise men visited Jesus. That was... You, some of you are thinking, oh, I'm mad. You told me there's only one cup co coffee questions. You tricked me with that. All right. I guess, I guess you can surmise both from the title of, of our message and our quiz what specific part of what is included in the traditional Christmas story that we'll be talking about today. And these guys are so intertwined with the Christmas story that we have different assumptions about them that may or may not necessarily be true. And so what we're taking a look at this morning is delving a little deeper into getting to know who these mysterious people from the East were. The traditional Christmas story says that at some point after Jesus was born, Either that night or sometime after that. Uh, the traditional Christmas story says that three wise men or three magi or three kings came from the east or what is called the Orient, bearing gifts for the baby Jesus. There are even names and origins that the Western Christian church has given to these three guys. Anybody know what any of those names are? Melchior from Persia. Caspar or Gaspar, not Casper, not, not that guy, from India, and Balthazar from Babylon. They ride into Jerusalem on camels, bringing with them three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. After being told where specifically the Messiah would be born, they arrive in Bethlehem where they present their gifts to baby Jesus and worship him as king. So how much of this story is actually true, according to the Bible, and what we know about ancient history at this point? Well, here is Matthew's incredibly detailed description of these men. If you brought your Bible with you, turn to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to just be in the first two verses this morning. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Uh, if you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, you can also turn to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. But this is what we read. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. We've heard those words so many times over the years. We even heard, we heard them last night again uh, as we heard the Christmas story being read. We know that these men came from the east, as Matthew says, and they followed a star. 
Matthew employs the Greek word magos to, to describe these men from which we get the English word magi. Now, who and what were the magos? Were they wise men? Were they kings? Were they something else? Can we determine any location more specifically than simply the east? Like mentioned before, Matthew uses the Greek word magos to describe these men. This isn't the first time we see this Greek word. When a bunch of Greek-speaking Jewish scholars translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into the Greek language about 130 years before the birth of Jesus, they used the Greek word magos to describe a certain group of people from an important section of Jewish history and extremely important to understanding who these New Testament magi were. For about 400 years, the people of Israel were ruled by a series of kings, some of who were good, most of who were evil. They led God's people to sin severely against God and towards each other. Because of this, about 600 years before the birth of Jesus, God sent a pagan empire to rule over the land of Israel, known as the Babylonian Empire. The emperor of the Babylonian Empire, named Nebuchadnezzar, you might have heard that name before, exported uh, several of the Jewish king's royal entourage, including a man named Daniel. You've heard that name before, you know, the guy that got tossed in the lion's den, that Daniel. We're going to talk about Daniel in a minute. A few years later, because of that Jewish king's rebellion against Babylonian rule, Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem and captured it. This time, the Babylonians carted away 10,000 of the rich and influential and left the poorest of the poor to fend for themselves. In addition, Nebuchadnezzar raided the temple in Jerusalem and carted away all the treasures from that temple back to Babylon. Now also keep, it, keep that in mind. Let's get back to Daniel. Daniel was forced to live in Babylon about 14 years prior to this, prior to the laying siege of Jerusalem, prior to the capturing it, prior to all the treasures of the temple being carted away to Babylon. Daniel was forced to live in Babylon about 14 years prior to all of this when Nebuchadnezzar took the brightest people from Israel's king Jehoiakim's royal court. We know from history that Nebuchadnezzar highly respected those who could interpret astrological signs and dreams and surrounded himself with the brightest of these types of people. These people who had a knack for interpreting dreams and prophecies and astrological events such as the appearance and falling of stars and eclipses formed a social class known in the Greek language as magos or magi. In fact, as pointed out by one biblical scholar, this is what we read about Daniel and his friends being added to Nebuchadnezzar's class of magi. In Daniel chapter 1, we read this. The king talked with them, and out of them all, out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. 
As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. Remember, this guy was thoroughly pagan, Nebuchadnezzar. The word translated as magician in English comes from the Greek translation of the Hebrew here, which was, dun da da magi. That's where we get the root, that's the root word for the word magician. So magi in the Babylonian court were men who were seen as having the gift of seeing things in omens, the stars, and in dreams. They would give their interpretations of what would happen in the future and in the fulfillment of prophecies and in the movement of stars to the king who would obviously want to know what was going on in the universe and selfishly how it connected to his reign. For instance, would he die soon? Would he rule for decades to come? Would he keep his kingdom or lose it to invaders? All these and more were questions that the king wanted answers for, and the magi sought to use their skills of seeing into things to give those answers. There was, very, there was something very special about Daniel, though. Whereas the rest of these guys had demonic sources to their uh, answers, Daniel was very special because he knew that God gave him the answers to these things. When Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that none of the other magi could give a sufficient answer in trying to interpret it, God gave Daniel the answer. Because Daniel was the only one who could give the right answer, Nebuchadnezzar saw Daniel as the wisest man in his class of magi and set up Daniel to be the governor over an entire province of his empire. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? As has been pointed out, not only was Daniel governor over an entire province in the empire, but more importantly, Daniel was made the chief Magi, the head honcho over the entire Babylonian class of Magi. We read this. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men, over all the Magi of the Babylonian empire. Now this is very important. Not only for Jewish history, but because of prophecies, God would give Daniel. God would give Daniel several prophecies specifically connected to none other than the Messiah and the Messiah's rule on earth. In fact, when one studies end times prophecies, they must study heavily the prophecies given to Daniel. Here's another thing we must keep in mind. Daniel was still ruling over the province of Babylon and still the head honcho, head honcho of the entire class of Magi when those other 10,000 other Jewish people were deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. No doubt the Jewish scriptures, if not in Daniel's possession already, would have been preserved in that deportation, and Daniel would have either known the messianic prophecies or would have gotten them at some point. 
We know this because according to Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 2, 2, which we just read a few minutes ago, it's, impar- it's apparent that the Magi who come to see baby Jesus knew about the Messianic prophecy given in Numbers 24, which says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel. And this, of course, is a reference to the Messianic king and his connection to a star coming forth from that land of Jacob. And what do the Magi in Matthew chapter 2 say? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Eventually in human history, the Babylonian Empire was overtaken and conquered by the Persian Empire, and the Persian king Cyrus the Great issued a decree to allow the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their city. Not everyone returned to Jerusalem, though. A lot of Jewish people had started to make decent livings in Babylon and so continued to live in the Persian Empire. What's important to note, however, is that when the Medes and then the Persians conquered Babylon, Daniel was still the ruler over this province and still presumably the leader over all the Magi. In fact, the new king was so impressed by Daniel's wisdom, not only did he expand Daniel's royal authority, but he was planning on making him governor over the entire empire. That's what led Daniel's fellow province governors to get more and more jealous of him, which led to Daniel eventually being thrown in the lion's den for praying to God and miraculously rescued. Now, why is all of this important to the Eastern visitors to Jesus? This class of magi would eventually adopt an ancient pagan religion known as Zoroastrianism and would become known as Zoroastrian astronomer priests in this pagan religion. In fact, the state religion of Persia would become Zoroastrianism. Even though the Persian Empire would fall in the centuries leading up to the birth of Jesus, the practice of Zoroastrianism, along with its powerful sect of astronomer priests, would continue to thrive in that area. So how did a group of Zoroastrian astronomer priests in in that area of Babylon and Persia have the Jewish scriptures and pay, care enough to pay so much attention to the Jewish messianic prophecies in those scriptures. Well, that's why I went through all of that background with Daniel. Daniel was most likely the head honcho of the Persian Magi until his death. And since Daniel was so highly respected by the Babylonian Median, and Persian kings. These Zoroastrian magi most likely highly revered Daniel in their religion, even though Daniel probably would not have wanted to be connected to their religion. 
As such, Daniel's Jewish scriptures and the messianic prophecies given to him by God would have been passed down through the generations of Zoroastrian magi and held as revered texts in their religion, even though they were Jewish and not technically Zoroastrian. This is extremely important because God outright told Daniel when the world should expect the messianic king. God revealed to Daniel, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Since the Jewish people saw things in terms of sets of seven, like the week and Sabbath being at the end of that week, the term week is a set of seven years. Now, I know it's Christmas morning. Some of you, your kids woke you up way too early today. But stay with me here. If you multiply all of those figures, you have 483 years. Stay with me. According to biblical scholar Gleason Archer, if you take Persian king Artaxerxes' decree in 457 BC for the restoration of Jerusalem in the time of distress, which Daniel 9.25 clearly says, and you add 483 years to 457 B.C., accounting for an extra year passing from B.C. to A.D., around what year do we have for the cutting off of the Messiah King from Israel or the death of the Messiah King? You get 27 A.D. Who cares, you might think. Well, if you think of Jesus' birth as happening around 4 to 5 B.C., which seems to fit the historical evidence a lot better, seeing as King Herod, who was out to get him, died at the, at the end of 4 B.C., then Jesus' public appearance and ministry would have begun around 26 to 27 A.D., and his death by crucifixion only a few years later. Isn't that cool? The appearance of the falling of stars was held in such high regard by kings and their personal magi that they saw these astrological events as announcing the rising or the falling of kings. So since the magi held astrological events in such high esteem, since the rising of stars was seen as omens of rising kings, since the Messiah king was connected to the rising of a star in the Jewish scriptures, and since these particular magi would have known Daniel's prophecies very well because they highly revered them, they had every reason to be looking for the appearance of a star around the time of the prophesied Messiah King's birth. It's been pointed out that all stars rise in the east due to the earth's rotation. Since it appears that this star rose over the area around Jerusalem, it's possible that it supernaturally rose in the west, thus directing the Magi's attention to it even more and then settling 
in the east. It's even possible that since God spoke to the Magi in a dream to not return to Herod, God had spoken to them in a dream to search for the Jewish Messiah King. You don't see that star? That represents the Jewish Messiah King. Here's a good question, though. Why would God, the one true God, Choose these particular people, being Zoroastrian and therefore thoroughly pagan in their religion, with little to no connection to the Jewish people except through Daniel, to search for the king of the Jews, and not only that, present him with gifts? Or does it, in fact, make all the sense in the world according to the rest of the Bible? Firstly, it seems like the entire Christmas story is one of turning everything upside down. We talked a little bit about that last night. Nothing went according to anybody's plan except God's plan. The Messiah King, who everyone thought was going to show up out of nowhere on the back of a horse with an army behind him to kick out the Romans from Judea, was born as a helpless, crying baby. Not only that, he wasn't even born in a palace or a nobleman's residence. He was born with peasants for parents, and there wasn't even enough room from, for them where they stayed and gave birth. So little room was there that upon his birth, the king of the entire universe was laid to sleep in his feeding trough for common barn animals. The first ones to witness his birth were not dignitaries, ambassadors, princes, or rulers. They were smelly, common sheep herders who everyone mistrusted and their occupation was synonymous with thievery. Here's the thing. The Jewish people, and especially those who studied the Jewish scriptures, they should have known the Messiah was coming. According to Matthew 2, they even knew where the Messiah was to be born. They should have been the ones on the lookout for this. But instead, it took a group of pagan, heathen, ethnically Gentile Babylonians who made a living off of doing exactly what God had outlawed in the Jewish law, that is determining omens from the stars, to show up with a large caravan to Herod's palace inquiring about the birth of the Jewish king for the Jewish religious leaders to even perk up and look into it for themselves. In the same way, the Apostle Paul notes that God is allowing Gentiles to become a part of his family of faith, not because they're better than Jewish people, but to make the Jewish people jealous of the Gentiles also becoming a part of their spiritual inheritance. So, Knowing that, what better way to kick that off than to introduce these thoroughly Gentile pagan magi as some of the first to pay homage to the Jewish Messiah King? Turn everything upside down. Secondly, as one biblical scholar points out, God uses these magi to settle something from Israel's past bringing about justice and ushering in the age of the Messiah. Let's go back to the days before Babylon captured Jerusalem and carted away 10,000 of their inhabitants and looted the temple. At that time, an Israelite king named Hezekiah ruled over the land of the Israelites. When an envoy of Babylonian ambassadors showed up to the palace, 
Hezekiah did something really boneheaded. He wanted to impress this group of Babylonian ambassadors so much that he showed them all his treasure house. Look at all the stuff I've got. The silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and his whole armory. They knew how many weapons he had. And all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Knowing Jewish history, now we think, what is wrong with you, man? Why did you do this? They knew where it all was. So when they came to conquer everything, they went straight to where it all was and took all of it for themselves. Noting his foolishness, the prophet Isaiah tells Hezekiah, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And when Nebuchadnezzar captures Jerusalem, this prophecy is fulfilled and all the treasure in Jerusalem as well as all the treasures in the temple are carted off to Babylon. In fact, we see the Babylonian king desecrating the treasure from the temple in Daniel 5. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. A smack in the face of the one true God. But yet, what do we see happening around the time of Jesus' birth? Exactly what Hezekiah showed off to Babylon and exactly what Babylon then stole from Jerusalem. The gold and the spices and the precious oil. You might say, I thought the Magi brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The gold is self-explanatory. There it is right there. Gold. But what frankincense is, is a spice. It's an aromatic resin taken from a certain tree and is then used in the production of incense and perfume. Because it comes from a tree, it has a scent similar to an evergreen tree. People still use it today, especially as an essential oil. Thirdly, what was stolen from Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar raided it was precious oil. And myrrh, when mixed with oil, produces an oil that both marks the person as a king and, ironically, is used to embalm dead bodies before burial. And why was Jesus born to die for our sins? In other words, God uses these magi, Babylonian ethnicity, and therefore offspring of the ancient Babylonians who captured and looted Jerusalem to take this stuff to very well possibly return what they had taken, but not just to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem's rightful king. Lastly, how aware were these pagan magi in terms of who they were worshiping? Well, we know what Matthew says. And we know that he says that at least on one occasion, God saw fit to reveal himself to them in a dream, and they listened to him. We know that Matthew says that they worshipped Jesus. 
While some would say that these magi by background would not have worshipped Jesus as God, but merely expressed their respect due to a king, if we look at other times Matthew uses, the exact same word he uses here in Matthew chapter 2, it's clearly in, connected with worshiping as one would a deity. After Jesus walked on water and then the storm stopped immediately around him, entering the boat, his disciples were in, we read, and those who were in the boat worshipped him. Same exact word, saying, you are certainly God's son. Yes, there was an aspect of paying homage to a king, as Herod claimed he was going to do, but I think there was more to it than just simply that. Why? Why would pagan Zoroastrians worship Jesus not only as king, but as God? Well, probably the same way that any of us come to a saving faith in Jesus. A lot of us may come from backgrounds that are essentially pagan. That is, with no interest in the God of the Bible. But over time, as we search the scriptures, and perhaps through supernatural events, we connect all the dots, and we end up putting our faith and trust in the one true God of the Bible. These particular magi had at least Daniel's prophecies, and if they connected the star they followed to the star in the prophecy in the Old Testament book of Numbers, of all books... They probably had other Jewish scriptures that had other messianic prophecies in them. There is a good chance these magi were Zoroastrian in background, but through the journey of reading the Jewish scriptures and having their prophecies confirmed by the appearance of a star over the land of Judah, they put their trust in the Jewish Messiah whose birth was heralded by that star. They then made it their mission to find that Messiah King in order to bring him not only gifts, but their worship of him as their deliverer as well. Anyone was going to be a long shot for recognizing Jesus as the prophesied Messiah and, and one, uh, the, the prophesied Messiah also for them, it would have been these guys. It would have been these astrologists who are part of another Eastern religion who had no reason to care about a Messiah unless they had had Daniel as a highly respected predecessor. And that's just one of the many reasons why God had Daniel go through what he went through centuries before. You may also know someone who's a long shot. Girls. It doesn't seem like there is any way they're going to put their trust in Jesus for their salvation. But just as God set up, set up for these magi to worship Jesus as their Messiah King, with Daniel, centuries before, God may be setting things up in that person's life. So, don't stop praying for them. Keep telling them about Jesus. Keep praying. Keep holding out hope for them. You might be that person that would never put their trust in Jesus as their king and savior. Don't ignore the promptings and the people God is putting in your life, just as he did these magi, to finally make that decision and finally surrender your life to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Finally, let us all worship Jesus as our Savior and King, not only with words and giving back to him, but with the very way we live out our lives. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words in the Gospel of Matthew that talk about who these people were. From what else we know in your word about who these men were and and what they did and, and what their background was and putting it all together to see all the meaning of these magi, these wise men showing up to look for the the prophesied Messiah who was just born in the town of Bethlehem. And if we know somebody who we think is a long shot to putting their faith in Jesus, let us never stop praying for for them. Let us never stop telling them the truth of God's word and love. Let us never stop holding out hope for them. Because you are the one who is sovereign over all things and over that person's soul. And if we're one that we think is a long shot to putting our faith in Jesus, may we surrender our lives even today on this Christmas morning uh, to you as king, as deliverer, as salvation from our sins. And know that only through you do we have the hope of eternity. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we close out our time this morning.